Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, my guest is integral philosopher Steve McIntosh, who's also my good friend and neighbor. And he's going to share his ideas and experiences around spiritual adventure. And he has the categories of spiritual adventure in the exteriors, that's wilderness adventures, and spiritual adventures in the interiors, and those are psychedelic adventures. So um, here we go with this conversation. We talked last week, and we started with him catching me up on his new book, Developmental Politics. So we'll start there and then get into the spiritual adventure. Thanks for listening. And we're talking about your new book, which right. is entitled Developmental Politics, right? How America Can Grow into a Better Version of Itself. Ah, so, right um, So, yeah, so th- this is a, we're in a pivotal moment in history, politi- politics-wise, especially. In other words, it's a kind of a crucible of green, whether green will emerge, you know, postmodernism, in, you know, in our jargon. If, if this progressive postmodern worldview is going to emerge into something that's going to supply a healthy moral system for Western civilization, or whether it's going to continue to create all kinds of turmoil and backlash, I mean, both are trying to happen at the same time. And so the integral perspective that cannot just see postmodernism as an evil ideology, but, and, or not just see it as the world's you know, future by itself, um, you know, an integral perspective is desperately needed right now. And in my experience, modernity has antibodies against the integral perspective, which we would expect and predict. But uh, uh, bringing an integral political perspective to the mainstream discourse through the various uh, markets and, and audiences that are open to it uh, is, is more needed now than ever. So it's a, it's a, it's an adventurous time and a key moment for uh, the integral perspective step forward on the stage of politics. I mean, not as elected officials, but just as, as, uh, uh, you know, ideological advisors to help people gain a more roomy perspective that, that they aren't locked into, uh, you know, these warring camps, you know, we're, we're, we're presenting a perspective that's effectively outside and above. You know, the kind of a perspective from a, a, a functional future. And, uh, you know, it's my hope and certainly um, what I'm dedicated myself to over the next few years is to try to bring an integral political perspective to politics. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about the book. Of course, I've read it in the galley form and it's brilliant. And thank you in advance. And people stay tuned for developmental politics. Yeah, it's due out early next year. It's in the publishing yeah. pipeline now. Unfortunately, these things take forever. They do. Molasses. I know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, having it be properly published and not just putting it out there by myself is, is you know, yeah. I have to do it. That's a good thing. Yeah. And uh, so um, I'm, you know, very much looking forward to my next book. Cool. Well, our topic for today is something a little different, and I'm excited about it. And you and I have talked about it uh, as being neighbors and friends. We talk about these things, and uh, we wanted to share more complete thoughts on this topic of spiritual adventure. Spiritual adventure. Yes, exactly. As you've sort of framed them in the categories of exterior adventures. Right. And interior adventures. Right. And right. 
I just thought this was a, a nice way to talk about uh, a, a, a rarefied element of spiritual experience, these kind of interior and exterior adventures that have been, um, you know, a huge part of my life since I was an adolescent and how they, they I'm, I'm seeing them as contrasting and, and being different extensions of each other in a way. So what I'm, I'm going to talk about is uh, adventures in spiritual experience as experienced through wilderness travel, right? Backcountry, backpacking, trekking, wilderness experience, and the experience of entheogens or psychedelic drugs. Okay. And, and those are the exteriors and the interiors? The, the exterior adventures in the wilderness and the interior adventures um, on, on psychedelics. And I mean, both of these are kind of, they're, they're a little bit secret, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're esoteric in the sense that while they're known and, and you could go online and read, you know, tons of material about both, um, in terms of their potential for spiritual experience and the way they contrast and illuminate each other a little bit, um, that part hasn't been fully explored. So, you know, this isn't territory I'm writing about, you know, it's, it's just something I'm living and we want to talk about something other than politics uh, this time. And just this seemed like a ripe topic for discussion because, um, you know, it's not fair for us to keep these things secret. You know, yeah. it's, it's important to talk about them a little bit. Even yeah, and I, 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 speak. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, you know, I've done a, a minor share of both of these things. Right. And, and they have been, in both cases, transformational for me and have had permanent long-term spiritual effects. Uh, but I haven't done them as a practice. I haven't done them over time. Uh, and, uh, and you have with, a, you know, in, in a lot of detail. So um, I'm, I'm eager to, to hear your insights into this. And, and I would um, actually share something that you sent. You sent me some notes on this. And when you talk about adventure, of course, you're talking about something where there's a danger of something going wrong. It's risky. Yeah, it's not exactly. for everybody. Yeah. yeah, it's not just an excursion. It's an adventure. Right. So, and, and you quote uh, Whitehead as saying that without adventure, civilization is in full decay. Yeah. Wow. You know, now, one of my favorite Alfred North Whitehead books is his 1933 book called Adventures of Ideas. And in that book, he he extols the the central human significance of the beautiful, the true, and the good in his you know Neoplatonic style. But to that list, he adds adventure, and you know he he describes adventure as the search for new perfections. You know that that being nerved by the spirit of adventure is essential not only to our civilization remain you know having vigor. But also, you know, us as humans, you know, exactly. quest. I mean, you know, right. Whitehead doesn't talk in terms of spiritual quest, but nevertheless, that's what he's talking about. And so I, I was inspired by that, you know, adventures being, you know, like the beautiful, the true and the good and kind of central elements of the spiritual path, at least for me. You know, mm -hmm. I've been blessed with the uh, equipment to be able to, um, you know, pursue these adventures. Yeah. Well, why don't you give us a little bit of a history of your adventuring. All right. And, um, and so this is spiritual adventure in the exterior world. Right, right. So when I, I was, I was never an athlete. Uh, I, when I was young and I was 12 and 13, I was completely enamored and attracted to the, to the counterculture, right? The hippie movement that, you know, I born in 1960. 
I was too young to be an authentic hippie. But by the time I was 13, that's all I wanted to be. I wanted to have long hair. I wanted to embrace progressive spirituality. It was as emerging then and all its newness. I was so excited by it. And in some ways, the central magic of the appeal of the counterculture was the psychedelic experience. And so that was something that I that I was attracted to. But at the same time, I was also, um, you know, pulled into wilderness experience. And, and at 13, I did my first backpacking trip in the Southern High Sierra. I grew up in Los Angeles and I went with a group. And throughout my teens, I uh, experienced more and more wilderness adventure and was so delighted by it. I mean, you know, I was freezing and I my feet were sore and, and, and it, it was arduous in certain ways. But the, just the beauty of the mountains um, kind of overwhelmed me in a way that was, um, uh, you know, it, 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 people always say this about profound spiritual experience, that it's, you know, beyond, you, you can't put it into words, you can't articulate it. But there's certainly been some great sages in history, like John Muir, who have done a pretty good job at articulating the spiritual experience that goes with wilderness. Um, in terms of my stories, you know, throughout the 70s, I pursued it. And then when I became a, a semi-professional athlete as a, as a bicycle racer, I uh, many of my friends were into backpacking as well. I mean, in, in the United States, for your national li- li- um, listeners, backpacking is not going to hostels and traveling around Europe. It's wilderness experience where you're at least, um, you know, several miles away from the nearest trailhead or cars, and you're in the backcountry. Um, either in the mountains or the deserts. Um, and the High Sierra in the late 70s was a place that that called me, and I, it came to be in a kind of a spiritual home for me. I eventually did the entire John Muir Trail and climbed many of the major peaks of the Sierra. And reading John Muir and experiencing the backcountry through his eyes and in my own experience was... Um, you know, was I feel like it's part of my soul. I feel like mm-hmm. it's kind of gone into who I am. Yeah. Um, but throughout my life, these exterior adventures continued. Um, well, well, let me just ask you, Steve. Yeah. Uh, so you're a teenager at this point. In the and, 70s. And, yeah, and, and, yeah, and maybe early 20s, whatever. Right. Did, you, did you have a self-conscious experience of these being spiritual experiences? Or was this just something that was happening and you weren't framing it as such? Oh, no, definitely. The thing that attracted me most about the counterculture was what we today call progressive spirituality, right? Alternative spirituality. And so I embraced that as my identity and read everything I could get my hands on and was, you know, I didn't have a a solid belief system or a lineage or a path that I followed, but I knew that the ancient triad of truth, beauty, and goodness was um, in in some ways a very important element of my spiritual path. I mean, and, and I had an intuition about it. It's continued throughout my life. So when I went to the mountains, you know, not only having read this progressive spiritual spirituality literature, but also John Muir himself, who's like a prophet of uh, spiritual experience, um, I definitely had eyes for it. I, I was looking for the beauty, you know, the the alpine glow, the the the, the the fading light of the sun on the tops of the peaks when it turns orange and magenta, or, you know, the delicate mist of the waterfall, you know, in the spray, you can see rainbows, or, uh, you know, a storm moving in. In other words, part of wilderness experience is feeling the awe of your, of your, you know, of how tiny and insignificant you are in comparison to these gigantic landscapes and incredible systems 
allowing yourself to be vulnerable to these things, you know, vulnerable to a storm moving in, vulnerable to spraining your ankle, right? I mean, you know, wilderness travel is is risky. There's all kinds of things that can happen, but but in the places, I mean, I've, I've backpacked throughout North America and Canada. Um, I've done it in, in the Himalayas, both Tibet and Nepal. Um, I've done it in Peru, uh, in, in the uh, Andes, in many places. And then also um, in Hawaii, which has some of the most special backpacking trips, wilderness experiences yeah. um, that you can imagine. Some of the yeah. wilderness coasts in Hawaii and the different islands that you can backpack to are like going to paradise for sure. Yeah. No, it's I, I've done the Nepali Trail in right. uh, in Kauai, which is yeah. uh, several miles away from civilization. Right. And uh, and I've done that a couple of times. I've done that up in the Rockies here too. But um, what is interesting to me, f- and, and, and sort of frame it in an integral perspective, is to experience these places with a pre-modern mind. So to see, to go down the Grand Canyon, as I have a couple of times, and to see it not as a function of erosion for millions yeah, of years, right, right. but it's just there. This right. is what has, this is where I am. Right. This right. is what has been presented to me. And I'm actually at the center of it. And it's all here for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, these places are like cathedrals. But if you, if you, if you can't feel some kind of awe and wonder, if in the, the places where beauty is the most intensely expressed anywhere on the planet, if you're not kind of moved by that, then, you know, your, your soul is not awake and alive. Yeah. Um, let me just quote John Muir uh, yeah, please. Uh, uh, in terms of his description of this spiritual experience. He writes, the, the wilderness symbolized divinity. The solemn monotone of the stream sifting through the woods seemed like the very voice of God, humanized, terrestrialized, and entering one's heart as to a home prepared for it. He writes, every feature glowed with intention, reflecting the plans of God. I mean, you don't have to believe in in a personalized God to see that there is a universal pattern. I mean, how do I, in, in my 2015 book, The Presence of the Infinite, I define spiritual experience loosely as the experience of the presence of the infinite in the finite. And certainly beauty is one of the ways that humans experience, you know, the glimmers of perfection in an evolving world. And, and the places where this perfection, where the, the veil is most thin, you know, where the beauty is, is just, just shining through, are these places in, you know, the high country, in the mountains, uh, at the bottoms of canyons like the Grand Canyon, um, you know, on, on wilderness coasts. I mean, the, the, the spiritual experience of nature can be had in many ways. I mean, people go to a viewpoint and just look over and have a spiritual experience of nature. Or they can go for a day hike. Or can they spend the, their day sitting by the side of a stream? There are many kinds of spiritual experience, many kinds of adventures in spiritual experience. But the two that I'm talking about are in some ways the most adventurous, right? Because they're the most risky and because you're the most vulnerable and, and uh, subject to uh, powers that are beyond your control. And so when you're out in the wilderness and, and you're not just, I mean, you know, Ken Wilbur talks about nature mysticism. Right, and that and that's been well developed in the literature on mysticism. And well, I think there's some overlap. I I think there's a tendency in general when people talk about um, spiritual experience of, of 
the wilderness and spiritual experience of, of entheogens is to try to conflate them as mysticism. It's like a shortcut to mysticism where it's the, you, you, you're maybe gaining a little bit of what the full-blown mystical experience is. And, um, you know, I, I kind of reject that characterization. Um, and I'm not the only one who, who's experienced mysticism and experienced these other kinds of spiritual experiences. Say, sure, there's overlap. And you can have a mystical experience while you're backpacking or while you're on psychedelic drugs. But um, I would say that they're not entirely the same. And, and so later, you know, as we talk this through, we can kind of get into the more the, the theological implications of what, yeah. uh, uh, of what these kinds, these distinct kinds of adventurous spiritual experiences, you know, what they imply or what right. we might be able to draw conclusions re regarding what the experience reveals. Right. But yeah, I, I know a lot of uh, uh, nature mysticism, as I understand it, is, um, you know, working with spirits. Hmm. And actually, um, it's like for me, when I was in the Grand Canyon, yeah. to the degree that I could practice, to the degree that I could sort of wipe away my modern understanding of what this was, right. uh, on the faces of the cliffs, I would see my ancestors. Wow. I mean, I, you know, it just, there it just was. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I know now, even, if I could just walk in the wilderness, not too far from our houses, um, there's, you know, I could talk to the clouds. I could talk to the trees. I could actually have a sort of a second person, um, relationship. Did you ever work with that sort of thing or, you know? Um, you know, I, I, I haven't had uh, animistic experiences like that, you know, yeah. faces in clouds. And I've, I guess the closest thing is, is especially the most mystical kinds of, of backpacking I've done is by myself where I go and I'm two days away from the nearest civilization and by you just, myself. You just did that. Yeah. Yeah, I did. It was, it was awesome. But you're getting a little old for that. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> I would think. Well, we'll have to see, but, but I remember being 19 and going into the Yosemite backcountry in October when there was nobody there in 1979 and feeling like I was being watched in a, in a positive, loving way, feeling like yeah. I was prepared for yeah. Feeling yeah. like um, that that I was alone and it was spooky and I was a little scared. Yeah. But but something was it was all going to be okay. You know there was a kind of a, don't worry in the background. Yeah. Even though you know I woke up with a foot of snow on the ground and I was freaking out. You know. But um, you know that these the, part of it is that you in the, these exterior adventures, the simplicity, the fact that you're free from the world and all you have is this little sack of gear and that's all you need. Right. For, you know, you're just liberated in a way that makes you appreciate that, you know, I'm an earthling and I belong to the earth. And this body has been crafted over millions of years to be this incredible entity that can yeah. traverse the world and be, you know, a, a pioneer of explorer in, in this realm. And so, um, you know, I guess the, the heart of the spiritual experience that comes from the adventure of wilderness is just the dimensions of beauty. In, in, in the context of solitude, um, in a way that you're, you're just reduced to the elementals and you just realize how much you're cared for. I mean, not just like by a spiritual presence, but by the earth itself, how, you know, the stream, the perfect stream just provides the water that you need and it's there. And the beauty in a sense is, is nourishing your soul as much as the water is nourishing your body. Um, you know, it almost becomes cliche because you fall into these grooves of, of talking about nature like so many people have. And people kind of have heard these things quite a bit. So, 
you know, it's, but, but until you experience it, um, when you do experience it, when you are in the backcountry and you are, uh, um, backpacking and you are, you know, some of these experiences can occur on a day hike because it only occurs at dusk when it's about to get dark mm-hmm. or in the morning or at midnight when you wake up and there's the, the, the Milky Way, like a great band over the, over the, uh, overarching, you know, and, and it's just a sea of stars. And, and you, when you know that, that the reason that the Milky Way has that band is that you're looking at the galaxy from the end, like that's the, the, the disc of the galaxy of the Milky Way. And you begin to feel like, okay, not only am I here, this tiny speck in the middle of this vast wilderness, but I'm here on this tiny speck of earth in the vast Milky Way. I mean, the, the okay. vastness of it, Yeah. you know, but, but yet when you go to the, to one extreme of, of just how tiny and insignificant you are, that also helps you loop back to the other extreme to know that you are original and you are significant and you are seen and known and loved by ultimate reality. I mean, these are, are experiences that, you know, I've had that I know as much as I know that I'm not dreaming, you know, between dreaming and waking, you kind of just know it in your bones. And part of these experiences have helped, helped lay down this soul knowing in a way yeah. that goes way beyond any kind of intellectual yeah. or belief system or anything like that. No, I know. I, I, even from my uh, earlier drug experiences, mainly with mushrooms, uh, I wondered, you know, is it just a chemical and it's just a, you know, a a function of some molecules in my brain that's making this happen. And I sort of explained it away that way for a long time until I realized that it just changed me. Yeah. You know, and there's a permanent acquisition of some form of enlightenment, some sort of expansion that is permanent. And um, so I, I think of it differently now. Well, so let me just address that before we kind of get into the, the internal side of our adventures. And that is, there are many people of good sense and good faith who take a dim view of psychedelic drugs. I mean, they think about all drugs as being, you know, lowbrow and, and, and kind of just rough and, and something that you should avoid. And that if you're going to be spiritually awakened, you can leave drugs behind, right? And so I respect that view. And I want to say that part of the way that I want to frame talking about psychedelic spiritual experience as a risky adventure, you know, I want to acknowledge, first of all, it's illegal, right? Felony in many places. Second of all, it can be dangerous for people who have, who could be psychologically triggered by it, right? So there are people who become depressed or there are people who've experienced psychosis that doesn't go away, right? So in other words, it's not for everybody. But in the same way that people get eaten by grizzly bears in the backcountry regularly, right? Go on Wikipedia. There's an informative, if macabre, list of all the grizzly bear deaths in North America over the past 20 years. And they're more frequent than you might expect. But that certainly hasn't kept me from backpacking in Glacier National Park or in the Canadian Rockies. Um, it's, it's risky. It's not, again, it's, it's something that only people who are physically healthy should do who are, you know, can, can hike miles and get themselves out. And it's something that only people who feel strong about their psychological center of gravity um, should undertake um, because these risks are there. And yeah. even people who are psychologically healthy have had, had psychological problems from psychedelic experience. So I want to kind of acknowledge that and just yeah. say, look, you know, it's not for everybody, but just like we're not going to ban backpacking because it's risky. Um, I don't think personally that psychedelics should be illegal just because they're risky either because they're not addictive 
they're certainly not deadly, uh, you know, unless people have a psychotic episode and jump off a roof, which is very, very rare. The, the millions of people in the United States who've had a psychedelic experience, most of them have been significantly benefited by it. Many of them have had, you know, profound spiritual transformations as a result of it. And I think that these things um, are, uh, uh, are important to put out there. And I think that many of us, well, that's kind of a secret, but most, I would say most of the people that I know in the integral movement have had a psychedelic experience. And, and everybody I've talked to about it has, is a sort of a positive regard for this experience. So it's kind of secret. It's kind of underground, but it's becoming more um, mainstreamed and normalized. Right. In other words, I don't think I'm damaging my author reputation by talking about it because we have Michael Pollan, you know, the modernist who went and investigated it and tried to frame it and say, don't worry, people, you know, the world is still safe for atheists, you know, even though he uh, uh, he has spiritual experiences, which he tried to. Uh, minimalize and compartmentalize. So I'm not a fan of Pollan's book or his analysis. Michael Pollan, he's a big writer. Big New York Times. New York, New York writer. Yep. So he went and he, he investigated it and then he writes about the history of it and then he writes about some sessions that he did with a psychologist in a, in a sort of guided setting. And so um, I am grateful to him for uh, making another inroad into helping modernity see this as something they don't need to be afraid of yep. and, you know while not risk-free is something that that there are a lot of arguments for making it more available to people uh, who are willing to do it in a responsible way okay at this point in the conversation steve and i turned our attention to spiritual adventure in the interior realms and i asked him about his history as i was you know like i was 13 uh, I went on my first backpacking trip and, and really got into it. Uh, it was shortly thereafter, in 1974, that I had my first um, LSD experience. And um, it was extremely profound. I mean, I couldn't wait to do it. I mean, I'd read all about it, right? And it was in popular culture then. You know, there was, they mean, Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. I mean, I listened to that 300 times. And, and clearly, LSD was leaking through the entire art. And you knew that that's what made the difference between you know, uh, the early Beatles and the later Beatles was that they had a spiritual awakening as a result from psychedelic experience. And I can also say that there's a good argument that um, among the, the many factors that led to the emergence of postmodernism, you know, the green worldview, that, that it had been percolating and we can see it, you know, in Rousseau or in Thoreau or, or throughout, it really it becomes democratized. It becomes a mass movement. It becomes a market. It becomes a political force. It, it becomes a demographically significant worldview. Of course, in the 60s, it's gone through a lot of changes. It's matured and developed some you know, pathologies since then that we didn't see back at the beginning. But this, the worldview-shattering experience of psychedelics was one of the major catalysts of the emergence of green. Because almost everybody who was embracing green was what had had a psychedelic experience or had a kind of a contact high from the people around them who were having that experience. And, you know, it, there's a lot of different angles that we could come to in terms of describing what it is that psychedelics do. But one of the most direct and profound is that it, it kind of dissolves your ego. In other words, you're a witness, you're experiencing the world, you can look around and see your setting. But because you're in a different place, you're elevated to the point where you recognize that you are a witness to the world. You are having experience, even without your ego, even above your ego. 
You know, the ego is kind of laughable. You know, the, and 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 in the same way that you're above your ego when you're on a significant you know dose of psychedelics, you um, you're also above the mundane world in a way. You know, one way I've described it is like so: if you spend your life underwater in the shallow end of the swimming pool. Right. And you look from underwater to the people around the pool and they're kind of watery and wavy and, and there's something going on, but you're, you can't really hear it because you're underwater. And then all of a sudden you stand up above the water and you're standing in the shallow end, you know, with waist deep water. And you can look around and see everything clearly. And then you can see yourself underwater, but you're now standing above that watery, blurry realm. And that's what it feels like is all of a sudden you can see your life clearly. And it's just like you can see your life as your soul in the afterlife will see yourself. I mean, again, that's a belief system assertion but but let me say that you feel as though this is me but but released from the mortal coil and so it allows you to look at your life with a sympathy you know that i imagine that if there are angels which there may very well be that that's the way they see you you know you see yourself from the astral plane you know or from the bardo realms you know you're able to kind of recognize your life and, and there's a, a sense, a really strong sense in most of these really intense experiences where you, you feel loved. You feel like everything is, everything's okay. Everything's working together for good. There's definitely a message of reassurance and, and a message of, of comfort. Now, you know, there could also be uncomfortable experiences, which we can talk about when we talk about some of these specific substances. Yeah. Well, uh, you um, know, I, my, my uh, mushroom trips were pretty reliable. And I didn't know what I was doing uh, at first, and uh, I wish I had. But they had always three pretty discernible parts. The first would be the ego dissolution, which would be actually, in it, especially early on, and I've done this maybe 20 times in my life, maybe less actually, but that, that ego dissolution was terrifying. And I was, I was like, what did I do? I took too much. I, uh, yeah, but what, uh, uh, you know, I hate this. Uh, what's going on? You know, that sort of thing. Paranoia, contraction, fear, uh, the, not wanting to look in the mirror, that kind of stuff. And, and then the second phase would be sort of where the world would be stage lit. You yeah. know, and nice everything, yeah, everything is just, is, is, in, 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 in Buddhism, they say that it, it becomes a symbol of itself. Mm. It's just all it needs to be. And right. it's, that's a beautiful, uh, you know, mystical kind of view of the world. Right, right. And then that third stage would be what you just discussed, just this sort of uh, fluid then movement into this big pool and lake of everything's okay. Yeah. 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 And hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's almost like you can laugh out loud. The world is so perfect. The beauty of everyone and everything is so intense that it's just like you get a cosmic giggle out of it. Um, oh, you know, and, the, and, and the laughs. Oh, my God. You yeah. know, in that maybe, the, the, especially as I learned what was going on, that first stage could be quite funny. And, um, right. you know, I'm glad I was able to learn how to reframe that. But, right. uh, you know, doing this stuff with you know, knowing what you're doing, which is kind of what we're doing here is helping people figure some of this out, uh, really helps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing that kept me coming back, I mean, in some ways, some of the more profound psychedelic experiences that I've had, um, I have felt as though that was a sacred thing and that I need to take some time to integrate that, that I'm not in a hurry to do that again. This is not entertainment. 
You know, it's not a form of self-gratification. It can be difficult. It can be a white knuckle experience, you know. Um, and so, it, it, you know, something that's done very occasionally and, and hopefully as a sacrament, that's the way to use it for spiritual experience. But one of the things that kept me coming back to it is uh, what's been described as the noetic quality of the experience. And, and in a way, another way of describing that is this cosmic consciousness. Like you're, you, I've gotten insights which I kind of knew in my cells, the truth of it penetrated me um, like an x-ray, you know, it's sort of like, and I was reconfigured by the truth of it. It was so powerful. I was so transparent to the truth of it. Um, and, and, and many times, maybe every time, there's a moral, you know, in other words, it seems as though the experience has given you a, a takeaway for you that's tailored to your life in this moment. Like, remember this as you go forward. So it's almost like, you know, your guru gave you a, a mantra or, or a, a watchword to live by. And, and, of course, those changed throughout my life throughout the decades. I have had different spiritual experiences, different psychedelic experiences in different parts of my life. Um, this noetic quality has, has been, you know, it's as if it's talking to me. You know, maybe it's my higher self talking to me or whatever. But, but just write, try and write things down. Some, like, at one point, I realized on a very deep LSD experience that the most the central, most central truth that we as integralists had to try to deliver to the world was that consciousness evolves. You know, I had a yellow pad and I wrote down consciousness evolves and I put an exclamation mark on the pencil, you know, and I, and I went back the next day and I looked at, at it, you know, not just the meaning of that sentence and how I've incorporated it in my own teaching, but just the line quality. You know how then the artists talk about line quality, like Picasso's lines were just had a quality that were were just he was able to just produce the line. You know, like Jimi Hendrix when he plays the string, there's just the way he plays it that just gives it its aliveness. Well, the line quality of my little doodles from my you know deep depths of my trip was as if you know that there was a different form of consciousness that was writing that. Wow, because it looked different than anything I would normally write. You know? Wow. I was sort of remembered it. it was like, whoa, this is a message from the universe, you know? Right on. Yeah. I hope I hope you uh, kept and framed those. Uh no. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> but I can still remember it, you know, yeah. when I had my my near-death experience, which is again overlaps but not the same. Um, I'll, I'm sure that'll flash before my eyes. Is like you know the, the vivid memory. Yeah, this evolves written horizontally in big you know bold letters scratched across my yellow pad. You know? Yeah. Well, um, the the truth of that is certainly well worth uh, the deep contemplation. Right. I'll tell you that. Um, so uh, you know these these experiences. So I mean, there's a culture behind it, which also has its kind of murky parts, but there's an intellectual uh, culture behind psychedelic experience. Um, I mean, just like, you know, uh, wilderness experience has John Muir as one of its major prophets. Um, you know, Terrence McKenna, the late Terrence McKenna writer, psychedelic impresario, um, is, is, you know, many people in the psychedelic community kind of regard him as a little bit like John Muir, you know, in his writing, he kind of inspired us all and, 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 you know, kind of, took a bellows to the magic and kind of made it flare up a little bit. And, um, you know, he also said some crazy stuff that's just new age and wacky, but so I'm not, you know, I mean, in the intellectual department, I, 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 I'm not a big 
fan of, of Terrence McKenna, but just in, in the spirit of the playfulness and, and the vividness of his descriptions, I'll always be his fan and admirer. What's he have to say? What's his... Say that I got to party with him a little bit. Oh, really? Yeah. You, yeah. You, you met him and partied with him? I smoked a joint with Terrence McKenna. <laughs> <laughs> what's his basic thesis or what's he have to say? I'm not sure I could summarize that, you know, but but some of the things that he would say, for example, is he he encouraged people to take, you know, to, to, to view psychedelics as, as an adventure and as an adventure in spiritual experience, right? So he says, you know, don't think of it as taking a small dose and going to a rock concert. Think of it as taking a large dose or what's known as a heroic dose, what I would call a sacramental dose, although any dose can be sacramental. When you take a, a, an, an amount that's designed to, um, you know, to, to, to really put you out there, just like you're backpacking, right? You can't go back to the car that day, right? Same thing with a sacramental dose of, of psychedelics is that, you know, you, you know, McKenna would say, you know, if you do four grams of mushrooms and sit alone in a room, you're going to think Ferdinand Magellan is second to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. Well, and that, that's sort of, I mean, just like there's this realm, especially in North America of wilderness, there, the, one of the things that psychedelics awakens you to is the vastness of the internal universe, the interior universe, as we might say. You know, in other words, it's, it's not, you know, I mean, the quadrants are helpful. And I know that Wilbur has, has you know, talks about the, the vastness of the interior universe. But for people who use the quadrants as a sort of a rubric to think about reality, the fact that there's these four quadrants and they're depicted as being symmetrical can kind of mask the truth that this psychological realm, the upper left quadrant, opens up into this vast realm of creativity that transcends culture and society and even biology. And even though there's neurological activity going on, and indeed psychedelics are, are work by changing your neurochemistry, like different so different substances are like playing key, keys on the keyboard, you know, so like th this substance will play this tone and this substance will play that tone. Mm -hmm. you know, there's many different kinds of psychedelics. Yeah. These, these different kinds of psychedelics, are, it's not all the same. The experience, right. there's some similarity, but some of them are radically different from others. Yeah. And, and that gives you a sense that you're exploring different parts of this internal universe and that it's endless, that you could keep going. You could go a thousand miles, so to speak, like on the Pacific Crest Trail or something. And you could go a thousand miles into this internal realm that psychedelics opens up in your direct experience. Um, you know, and in that way, uh, and maybe we should talk a little bit about something. Yeah, I, I, I got to say that is that was news to me. Yeah, because uh, I had always done mushrooms, and I haven't done really anything much in the last twenty years. But once or twice, a little light dose of something. Right. But um, but you know, to a, a serious psychonaut, there these there's a number of different substances, and they take you to different locations. Right. In different places. So, right. yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll tell some stories, some personal experience stories about the different locations that you can visit through these different substances. But let me frame that quickly by, by comparing it again to wilderness experience, right? So there's wilderness experience and anytime you go into the wilderness anywhere, right, on the Appalachian Trail or, you know, any place you can get away from civilization and just be there by yourself or with your group with nothing but your little sack of gear, um, at nature's mercy and immersed in her beauty, you know, that, that's, that's great. But, but the, the, the most intense spiritual experiences of backcountry experience 
are associated with locations themselves, sacred locations, right? So a lot of these have to do with sort of the topographically significant parts of North America, like at the foot or the summit of great mountains, you know, like uh, up in, um, in, uh, in Southern Canada, there's this uh, provincial park called Assiniboine. And Mount Assiniboine looks just like the Matterhorn. It's sort of carved, you know, in this cirque, and it's surrounded by these lakes. And it's some of the most intensely beautiful places in North America. And the beauty is, is not just that fact that it's the Continental Divide, but in some ways it's like the crown of the continent. You know, just like a flower is this, this sort of expression of the plant. You know, there's some places in North America and indeed all over the world where the flower of nature expresses itself. And, and this isn't just at the foot of great mountains. The, the sacredness is there, um, but it's also, you know, at the headwaters of, of mighty rivers, like the headwaters of the Green River in the Wind River Mountains, or the headwaters of the Rio Grande in uh, San Juan Mountains in the Rockies, right? Or, I mean, I spent um, three weeks uh, trekking around the base of Mount Everest, both in Tibet and Nepal. And, you know, it's not a projection, you know, the sacredness of Mount Everest, you know, the Tibetans call it Chomolungma, which is, you know, the goddess mother of the world. And when you're there in the face of this immensity, just this flowering of the planet's uplift, um, you know, the, the, the sacredness is, is palpable. It's not a matter of saying, okay, well, I know this is the highest mountain, therefore I'm projecting on it the sacred security. I mean, there's certainly there's some of that. But there's other ways in which, whoa, you just know this thing is heavy. It's yeah. almost like, a, like a, the appearance of a supernatural yeah. being, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, sacred locations, we meant, you mentioned Kauai, right? So one of the premier backpacking trips in the world is the 11 miles across this gnarly, muddy trail along the cliffs to Kalalau Beach. Which yep. is a wilderness beach. I did it. Hawaii. So right on, you know. The Kalalau is like paradise. You know, there's these green cliffs with the towers and the waterfalls coming right down onto the beach, you know, the perfect waves, these kind of caves and cliffs and giant mango trees and rotting guava all over the trail and you know, a stream that flows down. There's a head headland right above that stream overlooking Kalalau where there's a ruin of an ancient temple, a Hiyao, as they call it. And I remember being there, um, and we were standing at the Hiyao, and we were watching schools of dolphins right off the coast, and all of a sudden an owl came and landed on the corner of the Hiyao ruin, like about 30 feet from us. It just came and lighted there, and we said, whoa, look, there's an owl. And we sat, and we, we just watched the owl, and the owl watched us. I mean, it was spine-tingling sacredness. You know, I'll never forget as if, you know, that this spot was welcoming us in a way. Yeah. It, was, it was, was greeting us and, and loving us. You know, in nature, yeah. nature's arms were around us. And yes. just that feeling. And, of course... Um, and you know, actually, just let me... Yeah, go uh, ahead. Tell you. I sat at that same Hey Yao and had one of the most intense spiritual experiences of my life where I looked down at my foot and I saw that my foot uh, had like the vines that were growing everywhere had grown into the stones. And, you know, I don't know how long that lasted, but I remember it to this day and it was thir easily 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, that's cool. Yeah. So I'm glad that very there. spot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's lots of places like, um, 
you know, I mean, it's worth just dwelling for a moment on some of these sacred places. There's a spot in um, southern Utah in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Uh, it's got the sort of rather vulgar name of Coyote Gulch, right? I mean, you know, Gulch. It should be called Coyote Wonderland because down there in this um, in this canyon, which if you drive there, all you see is this sort of dusty plain. You have to backpack to get to it and then go down into it. And the beauty was across scale. It was fractal in the sense that the intensity of it, you just look up at the sides of the cliffs and it was just the, the desert varnish, you know, and the way that the plants and the trees were integrated. But then you look at your feet and, and just every little thing, just the way the wood is eroded and the way the water's flowing and the way the ferns are growing yes. where the stream falls out. You just, you feel as though yes. you've, gone, you've died and gone to heaven and you're yes. That's like Kalalau. I mean, yeah. everything's perfect. Right. It's like, you know, it was placed there. Right. It's like Zen monks came and arranged everything. Yes. But of yes. course, it's better than that. Better it's than better than that God. because yeah. God did it. Yeah. 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 Well, that sense. And of course, when you overlap, when you do psychedelics in wilderness, which I've done many times, then, I mean, it just, it's just, you just have to fall the, down in the dirt and just laugh and just, you just you feel so grateful. You feel so loved. You just, I don't know. I mean, it's so easy, easy to get overly gushy about this. <laughs> um, but uh, um, now, yeah. now I have not, I've, I've done I, in 1974 since then, I've had many phases in my life when I've had uh, varieties of psychedelic experiences, which I'll talk about. But, um, you know, I haven't done a psychedelic experience for about five years. Um, you know, it may be ripe coming soon. You know, maybe when mm -hmm. my book is done, I'll have another journey. But, um, you know, I, I sort of feel as though I've dissolved my ego plenty. You know, I need to kind of try to gather yeah. together now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I don't know if I'll do it again or not. I, it's funny. I've lost the desire to it away. I don't know what, what that's about. But again, I so value and cherish what I gained from the trips I did when I did them. Right. Right. So, so just like there are these intensely beautiful, intensely spiritual, sacred, external places that you can adventure to. It's almost like each substance is its own sacred location, right? Because the substance kind of takes you to a, a location in the internal universe that is, um, is, is fairly consistent, right? So there's, there's lots of misinformation and a lot of dilettantism, especially in the past about people talking about these things. I mean, they had, they had one trip and so now they're experts and they're going to tell you all about it and how it fits with the perennial philosophy, et cetera. Well, uh, in, in my experience, in, in this sort of underground culture of the hundreds of people that I know who, who take this medicine as part of their regular spiritual practice, we compare notes. And indeed, the, similar, the experiences are remarkably similar, even though each one is unique, even though the same substance can produce different experiences in the same person. There's also some remarkable similarities that point to, well, you know, you can say maybe this stuff just tricking your mind. Right? Maybe you're on a drug and everything you see is, an, is a hallucination and th therefore you can't put any stock into it. But, but the, I, th I think the bottom line for recognizing that whatever this is, even if it's totally subjective, totally psychological, totally just a trick of your brain chemistry, the fact that you're changed and altered and, and made into a more spiritual person as a result of these experiences, you know, most of them have elevated being spiritual. I've, I've, I've had the direct experience of spiritual growth as a result from going through that, right? And sometimes it wears off, but there's part of it that never wears off. 
like, um, you know, there's this funny bumper sticker that you see around Boulder sometimes. It's a takeoff on the life alert, you know, help, I've tripped and I can't get up, right? Well, the bumper sticker says, help, I've tripped and I can't get down. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it. And, and so there's a way in which that spiritual growth is permanent. I mean, just like a, a near-death experience for most people who have an authentically intense near-death experience, they're not afraid of death anymore. Right. They're, 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 they're sort of awakened to their space in the universe in a way that, that changes them forever. And I can report that that's definitely been the case with me um, in some of these more intense psychedelic journeys that I've taken. And so each one is, is a sort of a, 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 a trip to a sacred location in the interior universe. Um, and so I, I, so let me go ahead and, and talk specifically about 10 different, psychedelic substances, right? And, and the experiences that go with each kind of storytelling, you know, a little bit. Fair enough. Yeah. Let's so the it. first one, and I think in some ways the king of, of psychedelic experiences is ayahuasca, which is a botanical uh, um, um, brew made from a leaf and a vine. And uh, the vine contains, um, I think, the DMT, uh, which is the main uh, psychoactive ingredient but the DMT has to be sort of gradually metabolized by your mind. And there's this other chemical, the harmaline, harmaline, which is an MAO reuptake inhibitor that helps the DMT unfold in your experience over like a four-hour period, right? So the, the, how these ancient shamans discovered that if you take this leaf and this vine from the millions of different species in the Amazon, which is where this originates, and you brew them together into a tea and then you take them, I mean, it tastes so bad. Right? So the first time you take it, you think, no big deal. It's like a tea. I drank it. It was a little bitter. The next time you take it, it tastes worse. And then the next time you taste it, it tastes like really bad. And so the more you do it, just when they uncork it and you smell it after you've done it four or five times, you want to get sick. It's almost like your ego knows it's about to be dissolved. It's like, no, don't dissolve me again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's an interesting feature of this brew. But again, it's a botanical. It's natural. And you, you um, drink it. And then about 40 minutes later, you start to experience um, this intensely visual uh, field of psychedelics. Um, many people report serpent motifs. I mean, the, the visuals, the, the, the checkerboard rainbows, you know, the, the psychedelic colors and, and visions that you see, both with your eyes open and more intensely with your eyes closed. These ayahuasca experiences, I mean, I know some of my friends who are artists, serious, you know, painters, have painted this experience and it's they're painting what I saw, you know? So in other words, we're all seeing the same thing, which is an interesting, mm -hmm. maybe these are just neural correlates that are triggered, but maybe not. Yeah. And, and so then after this intense visual experience, then you get the really strong noetic quality uh, of cosmic consciousness where, for example, I, it's almost like I, I was taken. It was like, I was taken by the hand by this medicine. It had a, uh, a spirit to it and it took me and it brought me you know into psychological recognition of all the main people in my life all the people that i loved and some of the people that i didn't love who are my colleagues who i worked with who are you know some of my rivals and i mean i, I want to love everybody but you know in other words not everybody in your life is somebody that you necessarily is your loved one and yet i went with on this journey where i went and i i just loved on every one of them i just felt like oh my god this person is such a blessing in my life this person, you know, regardless of any kind of transactions we're in or trouble we may have down in that world below that we're now looking down upon, there's a way in which this is so permanent and so sacred and so just, it's just divine. 
And, and, and so, you know, afterwards, after these, I, I first did ayahuasca in 1994 when I was 34. And um, I did it that year six or seven times. And afterwards, in the morning, what I would wake up and we, it was, it's a ceremony, right? There's typically the way that the culture around it is. You can't just buy it off the street and go home and do it. You have to go with someone who acts as the, 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 the shaman or the guide or whatever who's there. And, um, and so you do it in a group and typically you spend the night uh, and then you wake up in the morning and you have a, a potluck breakfast where you share your experiences. And, and that's it's almost a little bit like a group therapy session. Um, and so just driving home in the morning, you know, I felt a little bit like St. Francis of Assisi must have felt. I mean, it was just like, I was just so gentle and so open and I actually called, I mean, I was totally straight at that point, but I would call up some of my, some of these people who I hadn't talked to in several weeks and just say, I just I would leave messages on their answering machine, like a crazy person, you know, I just want to tell you how much I love you. <laughs> I just haven't told you that. And I just want you to know you know, that if I die tomorrow, that you are just a blessing to me, you know? And so there was just this sort of, this sense of like being elevated and being, just be, be feeling as though um, there was this, that, that I was so loved and so cared for and that things were going so well. There was just, again, this, this reassurance and just this sense of non-attachment um, to the world, but yet in the same way, a loving of the world that I hadn't been able to experience my normal kind of ego buffered, you know, existence. So ayahuasca, um, I think is, is, um, you know, one of the things about it is it's called a, a purgative because a lot of people experience throwing up, you know? And so that's a lot of people don't want to do it because, oh my God, I don't want to throw up. Right. But I remember my friend, when she was persuading me to do it, she says, you know, I threw up and I, I, I went to the toilet and I threw up in the toilet. And then when I looked at what I had thrown up in the toilet, I could see that it was all the shit that I had with my mother had just been purged from me. And it was there in the toilet and I flushed it down and I've, I haven't felt bad about my mother ever since. You know, there was a sort of letting go of that yeah. and that physical throwing up was part of it. Now I only threw up once a tiny bit in the six times that I did it in 1994 and 1995. And I, you know, I've done it a few times since then, but, but I never had quite as much of a purgative effect, but the fact that I felt purged of, of, of um, negativity, you know, purged of of um, of kind of self-seeking or grasping, you know, that that sort of sense of, of lightness of being um, was a kind of spiritual growth that I received from that experience, which was um, you know everlastingly will be everlastingly cherished by me, and and I and that's why I, you can't help when you've had an experience like that to recommend it to people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's becoming more and more common, right? There's a cottage yeah. industry of these shamans who are doing it. The quality of the brew is really, um, there's a big variance. You know, originally in 94, we were getting it from, um, from Peru. People had brought it back and brewed it here. Uh, a lot of people go to Peru, you know, but again, even that's risky because there's a lot of, you know, fakery and, and uh, a lot of, of, of grift going on among the psychedelic tourists who go there. So, you know, it's just as easy now to do it in the United States. And, I mean, uh, friends of mine have gone and spent weeks down in, um, in Brazil, wow. for example, at, you know, retreats designed specifically for this and done it multiple times. And I've never done that. And so I can't say how much more profound and moving and spiritually growth-inducing right. doing it in South America would be. Um, you know, I'd love to do that. But, um, you know, not necessarily. Yeah. Uh, no, I know a, a bunch of people who have done really intense long-term travels 
right you know and they think it's been life-changing and worth every uh, bit of it but um seems like a big commitment well it's also important to say that i don't think it's a spiritual path by itself you know i know especially some like sort of intense stockbroker types kind of businessmen that they've kind of they've had an awakening from the ayahuasca so they kind of a, a, a do a type A thing where they try to do it a hundred times, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I haven't seen these guys who've really gotten into it and try to use it as a path, you know, and, and approach it like they would a meditation practice as a mm-hmm. kind of regular thing. I don't think, I don't see them as being spiritually transformed from that. Yeah. I think that the, the spiritual growth that it offers uh, is something that needs to be integrated over time. Ideally, you know, maybe you kind of have a, a, you know, you go to Brazil and you do it five times over five nights, but then, you know, you need to do it for several years because you need to kind of integrate that and, and let it wash over you a bit. And and that's, you know, I would emphasize it, that that it's it, it can be an important supplement to whatever spiritual path you might be on. And it can be a kind of a jump start to people yeah. who don't have a spiritual path or any kind of spiritual element of their life. But I don't personally believe that it should be undertaken as a, a spiritual path um, or, or thought of as, well, what's your religion? Well, my religion is psychedelic experience. I think, you know, yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just say that I, I've actually made a list of 10 major psychedelic substances and I'll go through and briefly talk about um, my experiences with each one. Um, most of which I've done many times. So ayahuasca, certainly, I would say, the most spiritually profound and the most sort of needed by our larger society. And, you know, the New York Times has done at least 10 different articles about ayahuasca. So it's becoming sort of chic now. Um, And I hope that doesn't ruin it or or otherwise, you know, kind of take away some of its important mystique. But um, uh, ayahuasca has certainly been the most life-changing for me. Um, But... um, People who are familiar with the medicine often talk about the experience in terms of power and light, right? And so the, each each experience has a different combination of these two in a way. You know, the light being the noetic cosmic consciousness, you know, the insights you get about being loved by the universe, about being connected to everything, about universal patterns configuring everything. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, cosmic insights that you get about your life and about the universe. Um, but there's also what you know, the power, the fact that you're at its mercy. The fact that your ego is dissolved, the fact that you've been chemically, alchemically, you know, transformed by it. And some, um, some substances have more, are more about the power, another are more about the light. At least that's one way of framing it. Um, you know, the other botanical and, and very uh, prevalent psychedelic, of course, are psilocybin mushrooms, which um, are, you know, you have to know people in the counterculture to get your hands on these things. But if you're an integralist, then your connection to the green counterculture is sort of part of how you get to an integral awareness. But the fact that it's not that something as, you know, culturally and spiritually significant as psilocybin mushrooms, which have been, you know, done since antiquity, you know, and, and all these substances have, I mean, psychedelics were a part of antiquity, East, West, and of course, you know, indigenous peoples worldwide have, have recognized the religious significance of these botanical substances. But the, um, the psilocybin mushrooms, one of the great things about them is that you can get, unlike ayahuasca, where you have to go and there's a shaman and, you know, you have to be with all these people and they're throwing up, and, you know, it's kind of an ordeal. Um, psilocybin, you can go and take by yourself, by the fireside, you know, or out in nature, right, by yourself. And, and these experiences are extremely, um, you know, uh, overly using the word profound. 
again, we're talking about these rare spiritual experiences. So the vocabulary is, is there's a dearth of it. We don't have enough vocabulary. I think that as these things become eventually legalized and more integrated into our culture, we'll have a much more robust vocabulary for talking about the internal universe and the experiences that these things afford. But um, psilocybin mushrooms definitely have been an important part of the spiritual growth that I've had from psychedelic experience in general. I mean, one of the things that I've done with, with psilocybin mushrooms is taken heroic doses. I mean, not always, but I mean, not in nature, but at home, you know, um, for example, one time I did six grams and which is a large, very large dose. And, you know, towards the end, I mean, it only lasts about four hours, but you know, it was sort of not only did it wash away my ego, but it washed away a lot of my, my mind. And, and this was not a pleasant experience, but it was a very profound experience. It left me with a grip on spiritual truth that I hadn't had before. And the experience was comparable to, I felt as though I was at the North Pole and there was a giant blizzard, you know, with a hundred mile an hour winds. I mean, not literally, but that's kind of what it felt like. And I felt like I had found the North Pole, you know, like the candies, the barber pole, you know, the kind of the cartoon version of it. Right. And I was sort of clinging to this pole, trying to hang on to this wind of my mind being blown away. And I realized that the pole that I was clinging to was the sort of a fundamental spiritual truth that I could proclaim in the face of death. You know, the, the, the spiritual truth of I am I'm a son of God and I am beloved of the universe and I belong here and that, that my life is 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 you know, it's real and that my, my, my identity is sacred and that I can affirm that I am a son of God and that I, that I, you know, that I have trust in the ultimate realities, awareness of me. And that just those things, even though I could barely think a thought, just like saying those as a mantra helped me kind of ride out the storm so that when the experience sort of wore off and my mind reconfigured itself, um, you know, I could kind of tell where the, the, the sort of the where my salvation as a spiritual being and ascender, you know, beyond this life was sort of anchored. Mm, hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really profound. And um, so, so mushrooms are good because you can experiment with them. And 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 uh, you know, again, people have had bad psychological experiences. You know, not just bad trips, but but bad effects afterwards. So even though I'm talking about it in glowing terms, I also want to say, you know. If you go backpacking in, in Glacier National Park, there's a small chance that a grizzly bear is going to come and eat you. And that's going to be one of the gnarliest, you know, things you could possibly experience in life. I mean, even in death. So, again, I want to keep touching back on this is not for everybody. It's adventure. It's risky. But if you're up for it, if you're nerved by the spirit of adventure in the internal universe, then these are things that um, you might want to consider checking out. Moving down the list of... Um, of uh, indigenous um, psychedelics, uh, we have, of course, peyote, which is the foundation of the Native American church. And unlike the psilocybin, right, or the DMT and the ayahuasca, mescaline is its own um, psychedelic molecule, which is naturally contained in the peyote, as well as in the San Pedro cactus, also contains mescaline. But again, the peyote experience and the San Pedro experience are different. Um, the, the San Pedro is very much about the power, not a lot of light. Whereas uh, the, the um, uh, peyote is more balanced with power and light in the sense that the, the visuals are a little different. You know, it's more of a yellow palette as opposed to a maroon palette. <laughs> and, and the trip lasts a lot longer. You know, like ayahuasca lasts about four hours. Mushrooms last a lot four hours. Peyote lasts, I don't know, in my experience, 12 hours. And, um, you know, definitely a w worthwhile experience, but harder to get a hold of. And, and I've only done mm -hmm. it a few times. 
Then there's a very interesting psychedelic, which is also um, uh, natural, and that is what's known as 5-MeO-DMT, right? This is the excretions of the, the toads, the, south, the, the, the Southwest Desert toads of Mexico uh, on the, their backs, um, and they excrete a, a, a venom. Okay, all right. What? How, toad venom? How, yes, I have. But <laughs> how in the world did we discover that the excretions on the back of a toad would get us off. Well, it's a very interesting story. Um, as part of the mainstreaming of psychedelics, there's now a television program called Hamilton's Pharmacopeia. It's a series. It's produced by Vice, and it's about this this young kind of chemist, graduate student, hipster guy who his his you know he's sort of intellectually interested in all the different psychedelics. And so they produce this television series where he goes around and he has different experiences with these different um, psychedelics and talks about their history. I mean, it's, it's more about the chemistry and the culture than it is about the interior universe, but it's fascinating nonetheless. And one of the episodes is about uh, the 5-MeO-DMT, where he um, apparently tries to suss out how they came up with this. This was not something that was done like peyote by the, you know, in time immemorial by indigenous North Americans. Um, it was discovered by, apparently, according to this television show, by this green psychedelic guy who was living in Tucson and would go uh, and, at night walking around and he kind of had an intuition that that the toad venom was something that was interesting and so he would he found a toad this, this toad is the species of bufo I can't tell you the Latin name but but he, he put a little bit of it on the end of a cigarette and 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 smoked his cigarette just with the end of it with that little bit of toad venom on it and and had a 5meo experience. Um, and that's then he published a pamphlet on it, kind of underground pamphlet, and then it became it was synthesized in China. And because it wasn't on the um, the Schedule One list during the '90s, you could just buy it mail order. And so, while now a lot of people do it with the actual toad venom, it's chemically indistinct from what wow. was once available. I thought I would be asking a rhetorical question. I did not think you'd have an answer to that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> just one guy. He kind of was experimenting. You know, another adventurer. Yeah. So now 5-MEO, again, people are their shamans. You can go pay somebody and have the experience. Um, and it's totally different because um, it's only lasts about 15 minutes. But it's very much like a near-death experience. I, I haven't had a full-blown near-death experience. I've had something close, but I've, I've studied the reports and I've read many accounts. And I think among these different psychedelics, this is probably the most, um, the nearest to it. Um, you know, in my experience... I it felt as though I was sitting in a room on a chair and, um, you know, you smoke it uh, and, and after you take a big hit and you let it out, all of a sudden, I felt as though I was, I was out of my body, like it was an astral travel. I was pulled from my chair up, up into the air, like 100 feet into the air, above through the roof and up into the space above the building where I was experiencing it. And I felt as though there was this sort of host of beings you know, like my, my seraphim or my angel, my guardians, you know, that they, that I all of a sudden was presented mm. to them and I was among them. Mm. And they, they, they sort of welcomed me. They sort of said, you know, I mean, we're glad you're here. We're glad we get to communicate to you directly. Again, this might've just been some drug hallucination. I mean, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be circumspect in my claims for the ontology of this, but nevertheless, I'll never forget it. I mean, it's a million year memory because they, they just gave me this sense of reassurance. They just said, look, you're, everything you're doing in life is perfect. What you, you know, you're on, you're on the right track. You're, you're giving your gift. 
you know, you're, you know, I felt as though they were confirming that I had a kind of a destiny, that I had a, that I had a providence, a providential path that they were there to help me with. And they were just letting me know that, that, that we, they were on the path with me and I was on the right path. And, oh my God, it was just so intensely just, I mean, afterwards, I just, again, if the ayahuasca made me feel like St. Francis, this made me feel like, I don't know, you know, I, I don't want to compare myself to any great persons i certainly don't feel that i am but i am saying that after this experience i felt that they had consecrated my life mm. in a way that was um you know that it's just again my cells were reconfigured by it and uh and you know wow. i feel it today to the 5meo dmt which is different from regular dmt okay now i'm moving from the um these these um botanical well, let me just oil. stop you for a second yeah uh, uh i'm not sure if it's on your list but salvia is another one that sort of had its uh, sort of a phase in Boulder a few years ago where people were right. smoking salvia, and it, they probably still are. And it was also a 15-minute kind of a thing. Right. And is this similar to that? No. I mean, okay. so, so other, other botanical psychedelics that are worth mentioning that are more esoteric, one is salvia divinorum, uh, and the other is Amanita muscaria, which is a different kind of mushroom. Right, it's it's not uh, the, the psilocybin cubensis, right? And so Amanita muscaria is associated with uh, Asian sh shamans, like Mongolian shamans, but it grows throughout the world. I mean, you can see it in the mountains above Boulder, the the red cap mushroom with little white tops. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I've definitely had an experience on that. It was definitely um, not a very intense experience, so maybe I didn't do enough, or maybe we didn't have enough potent stuff. <clears throat> you know, it was it. it I don't know whether I'm ready to characterize it. Yeah. You know, it definitely was altering, but but in a way that was mysterious that I can't quite report on. The salvia divinorum, and again, another esoteric thing because it's it's a it's a more along the lines of a what's called a dissociative um, experience, and and that experience is, is in the same family as ketamine, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment so salvia yeah. is different because it's not as if you're loved and you're you're journeying in the eternal universe it's like you're disintegrated you know it's not just to dissolve your ego but it's sort of you're you're the the, the things that cohere as yourself are sort of sent to different parts of the universe you know? right <laughs> yeah I, I i didn't do it but i was with people who were doing it and it didn't yeah. seem like that much fun to me i don't know no no it's dark but it was at least yeah, it was quick like, so had that going for it pleasant. all right so um, all right so we're done with the toad venom we're done with the toad venom. Right. Now, and, and, and I see your note here. You say it's natural, but not vegan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> right. Right. Animal product. Yes. All right. So, um, okay. So then there's the regular DMT, which is also a 15 minute experience. But again, it's, 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 even though 5-MeO DMT sounds like it's just a type of DMT, they're, chemically they're significantly different. Right. So regular DMT is one of the active, the main active ingredient in ayahuasca. But when you, when you smoke it, when you melt it down and smoke it like you would crack cocaine or something, like in a glass pipe, you get a 15-minute, 20-minute experience that, I mean, some people have called, it's like being kicked in the head by a psychedelic horse. I mean, you just jerked out of your body. It's, it's really intense. And there are beings, but they're di the different group of beings than the five MEO beings, right? So in other words, you, you, I felt like I was thrown into this cascading checkerboard rainbow psychedelic machine you know, gears like this giant psychedelic machine and the, the huge gears and I was just like falling through them and then I fell through in another dimension and I I landed at the feet of these higher beings these celestial beings and I couldn't see them it was like I was permanently in a 
and I was bowed down before them and I was at their feet. And they, they kind of were, they, they, my arrival in their midst was sort of humorous to them. They said, look, you know, this little journeyer has arrived. And they said, you know, it, was, it wasn't like they were welcoming me like my angels. They were more like saying, you know, oh, okay, you're here. All right, don't come back for a while. You know, you, we, you've been here. You've seen this. Now go back and integrate for the next thousand years, you know. Right. And, and so Wow. We, um, one of the major academics who studies this and who's, who's had a lot of thinking about it is the um, uh, professor at the University of New Mexico, Rick Strassman. So he wrote a very famous book in 2000 called DMT, the Spirit Molecule, where he talks a lot about a, a lot of the clinical research he did with students who gave them DMT. And he's got all these reports and he's tried to sort of make sense of it. And I've corresponded with him about this. Um, we'll talk, we'll kind of return to this subject when we get to the theological implications. But um, the the uh, you know what what Strassman has has said is that is that these in all these reports of people taking DMT, almost everybody reports seeing the beings. The DMT beings are are a, like a ubiquitous feature of the experience and almost universal in 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 people reporting about it. And some people describe them as you know McKenna described them as machine elves, right? And that's not. What my experience was, uh, even though I had read McKenna. <laughs> <laughs> machine uh, elves. Machine elves, yeah. And, um, you know, but the beings, he speculated a lot about it. So in his 2001 book, or no, in his 2014 book, which is called um, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, he, 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 he does some very interesting comparisons between the, um, the reports of the um, prophets of the Hebrew Bible, right, the, the First Testament prophets, uh, how they saw the clouds parting and the angels, the trumpets, and all these kind of elaborate uh, descriptions from Ezekiel and Isaiah and all the great prophets of Israel. And then he tries to analyze the phenomenology of those reports to the reports of the students that he's got from the DMT. And he kind of compares. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, and he sort of says maybe these ancient Israeli prophets had a DMT experience because DMT is ubiquitous and you know, your brain makes it, it's in like hundreds of botanicals. Even though when you when you, the, the drug that most people get to do, if they do it with ayahuasca, they do it over four hours. But if they do the 15-minute the you know, intense experience, then they're doing a synthetic uh, chemical. But the DMT that's been synthesized in that way, it, all it's doing is a synthetic you know, um, analog to or example of this ubiquitous chemical. And so there's been, um, uh, there's been uh, speculation that a near-death experience can be explained by, you know, that when you know your death is nigh, your brain uh, floods your, your uh, chemistry with DMT molecules, which is in there, like dopamine or something. But that's been debunked, I think. And in other words, they, they, that was a good hypothesis, but they've looked at it thir- further hmm. or no. You can't just explain a near-death experience as the DMT experience, because they're in there. They're different. You know, I mean, there's a, just like there's the phenomenology of the beings that everybody encounters and the, and the machine mm-hmm. and everything. With a near-death experience, there's a whole elaborate phenomenology. It's reported again and again and again of thousands of reports. People never read anything. It wasn't like it was, it was planted in their brain, and that's what they expected, so they projected it. It's like, no, they never even knew there was a thing called near-death experience. Right. They had one. It changed them spiritually. They reported it, the tunnel, the light, the beings, the, you know, and, and thousands of reports are saying the same thing. So, again, maybe this is just a neural correlate that's triggered, but it sure doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Right. So, um, uh, so DMT again. You know, I, I did it twice. That was enough. I'm not in a big hurry to run back for that experience. <laughs> I don't want to be kicked by the horse again. Yeah. Um, but definitely worth. I mean, it was part of this exploration. Like, wow, I'm glad I went to that internal location. Yeah. 
because it taught me something about reality that I wouldn't have otherwise known. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's like, I don't it's know. Like, the reality is way bigger yes. than what we can see in our little mortal coil here. Exactly. The, the, the internal universe, it's vast. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's just, sure. you know, it's, it's there. It's a permanent yeah. thing. Yeah. So then um, moving now to, of course, the, the, the most historically significant psychedelic, I would say, at least in the modern era, which is LSD. Um, again, I first did that in 1974. And I've done it. And I haven't done it in a while, but I've definitely done it throughout my life, you know, many times. It's been a touchstone. Um, the biggest problem is that it takes 12 hours. You know, I mean, you know, you're tripping hard for like six hours, but then there's this backside where you're still, you're not straight, but you're not in the depths of the trip. And some of my most profound um, insights philosophically and spiritually, theologically, have come from that backside, you know, where I'm still digesting it. And one of the most mysterious and fascinating things about LSD is that the dose that you need to take is almost homeopathic. So what do you mean? I took six grams of mushrooms, right? That's a, a giant amount of, of you're, you're physically metabolizing this psilocybin drug, right? But when it comes to the LSD, a typical dose is 100 micrograms. A microgram, it's a millionth of a gram. So, I mean, you're not metabolizing a substance like you're drunk on alcohol. I mean, this thing is a trigger. There's no way. I mean, it's, just, it's so tiny, the amount of actual chem chemical that you're taking into your body that gives you this 12-hour journey into the depths of reality. I don't understand how it could be 100 micrograms, you know, but yet that's, that's part of the mystery of it. Yeah. I mean, clearly, you know, we can explain it. Okay, well, it's, pl again, playing the keyboards. So it, 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 all it takes is that little homeopathic trigger to un unlock this cascade of neurotransmitting events that then make, you know, instead of your parts of your brain talking to themselves, this kind of gives you a way of your, of your brain talking to each other. But I don't think it can be adequately explained or reduced to a neurophysiological explanation. Right? I think there's some mystery to it that um, all the neurochemistry in the world is not going to unlock hmm. or, or wow. reduce. Um, so, uh, you know, LSD, again, has transformed our culture because it's been democratized. Because, you know, a hit of window pane was three bucks, you know, and, and there were these underground chemists making it, um, you know, but also LSD can spoil. It can go bad if you, you know, you don't keep it in the freezer or something. And so when you take the bad, I mean, everybody's seen Woodstock, the movie, right? And they get on the, you know, wavy gravy is on the, is on the PA saying there's some bad acid going around, you know, oh. it's like, well, yeah, it, 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 I mean, it can, it can re reduce in a kind of a negative experience if, if the purity of what you're taking um, is been contaminated. And that's another reason why maybe not LSD, but, but some kind of psychedelic experience, I would say should be legal, um, for political reasons. You know, if you're a cancer patient and you can take mushrooms and it changes the way, I mean, if you're a terminal patient, I mean, this is, you know, people who are near the end when they're given psilocybin experiences, it's like a weight coming off of their shoulders. You know, they, they, they report feeling as though they're not afraid of death anymore that they have a calmness about it, that they're almost looking forward to it, that they're just relieved and they're just spiritually assured, you know, and, and they're just, so there's like a benediction that they receive from this blessing. And this is so profound. I mean, if, if, if the, these cancer terminal ill patients who are being ministered to by this substance, why shouldn't this experience be available to everybody, you know, despite its risks, right? And I mean, again, if you have to get a permit to go backpacking, Right, and they make sure you're carrying water and you're not a complete idiot. You could get a permit and have a psychedelic experience. Psycho, you know, the psychiatrist could check you out. 
Yeah. I don't know. I, I, well, it feels to me like we're moving in that direction. Uh, it's it certainly with ketamine is being now used to treat depression. And I think there's a new legality about that that I'm, I'm not sure of the details. Sure. Well, and, and ayahuasca has been used to treat addiction. Dennis McKenna, Terrence's brother, who, who lives on and who's an academic at the uh, University of Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, um, uh, he's done a lot of experience with people who are heroin addicts or alcoholics who have an ayahuasca experience and the spiritual awakening of it. You know, just like, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual cure for a physiological disease, um, you know, that that some of these more profound psychedelic experiences have been known to help people awaken out of their addictions. Yeah. But if you think culturally, you know, there's sort of a cutting, frothy edge experimenting with it. It doesn't seem like it's high on the list of things that the the feds are, are, are prosecuting. I mean... There's sort of a de facto, it seems in Boulder that there's plenty of psychedelics floating around, and I don't see many people getting prosecuted for them. I mean, I don't know. I don't know either. You know, I know that it's- But they are illegal. It's still crime. It's still- you know, it, it, it's it's still gnarly. It's still there. There's still civil forfeiture is still out there. I mean, yep. there's all kinds of ways that the, the the man can mess with you if you uh, <laughs> are on psychedelics or you possess psychedelics. Um, and and again, if if you're like you and me and you know a whole bunch of hippies and you live in Boulder, it's no big deal. But if you're in Minnesota and you're a cancer patient and you don't know anybody who's green, you can't. You don't have a connection. I mean, there's something unjust about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right on. So, um, so LSD, you know, I mean, again, we could we could spend an hour just talking about that experience. But one of the most profound experiences that I've had that's up there with with ayahuasca in terms of the life changing was when I combined in the nineties. You know, when I was more adventurous in my thirties, I haven't done this for a long time. But um, when you combine LSD with MDMA, right? So MDMA ecstasy, right? It's its own. I mean, it's classified as a psychedelic, but all these others are mental. MDMA is much more emotional. You know, it's like a love bomb. You know, I, I, I described loving people on ayahuasca. Well, when you're on the MDMA, it's like, oh, my God. I mean, so when my wife and I were first dating, you know, we had an intense MDMA experience, and it was so bonding. I mean, we were just, we were just so with each other. I mean, and, you know, when you're dating, there's always kind of, well, is this person right? And it was just in that moment that we knew that, that we had found our lifelong love. Oh. I mean, it was just like do you really love me? You know, are you really going to stay with me? You know, and she said, yes, I really do love you. And it was because I knew that in that moment, it was coming from the deepest place in her being that, that, you know, she was just opened up with this in total, just like, like just this being saturated in love. that was so deep. You could just, you know, laugh out loud about it. And DMA is another bucketless thing, which again, you know, it's, it's a gnarly chemical. The hangover is intense. Unlike these other um, substances. Right. Um, and if you do it, the more you do it, the less it good it is. The first time, it's like when you're a virgin and then all of a sudden you get the big dopamine dump. It's it's like the most euphoric experience you've ever had. It's just the euphoria, the pleasure. The, the yeah. pleasure is just like, it's like a 20-minute orgasm just keeps going on and on. And then afterwards, it's like, you know, you're on the plane and you take off and you're you're pinned to your seat. And then all of a sudden, you know, the rush is over and then the, you know, the flight attendant comes on and says, you're now free to roam about the cabin, you know? <laughs> and for the next four hours, you're just like in this world of wonder where you're just emotionally open-hearted and you're just so accepting and so loving. So that's been really good for bonding in my early, right. uh, well, they, married for 20 years now. They don't call it ecstasy for nothing. Right. 
but when I, but it, when I was more into the high adventure in the internal universe, I did a, a double dose of ecstasy. I waited two hours. I was in the peak of the ecstasy experience, and then I did a double dose of LSD. And you know, I was lying on the couch, and it felt as though a psychedelic wave just like came and just like broke on top of me. And then I was, it was like I was behind the veil. It was, you know, literally. I mean, that's a, a you know a cliche almost, but it was as if that that the 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 astral realm, the Bardo realm, or whatever, you know, there's this kind of alternative universe that's there that we can't see. And all of a sudden that became transparent. And I felt like I was behind the veil and I could see the world as the angels see it. So to speak. Mm. And, and I listened to music and I just sort of felt like the profundity of history was so deep and that the path, like history was, was the universe's greatest art, that human history for all its drama was, was creating a kind of unique and beautiful art that the, the course of human history, you know, could be viewed from outside this world as a kind of a giant masterpiece of art. And I felt as though in this event that went on for, you know, 10 hours, it was as if in my little house that an artistic world-changing masterpiece event had descended on the house you know, like in the Wizard of Oz, when the, the house lands on the Wicked Witch, you know, that, 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 that we, we felt as though this thing had just descended on us. And that from the experience that we had, the world outside was changed forever. You know, this is a sort of epical event that had kind of, that had changed the vibration of the world. Now, again, all this was, you know, drug hallucinations, right? <laughs> just the, 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 the feeling of, of, of expansiveness, the feeling of being part of history. The feeling of being able to make history just in the internal thoughts, let alone yeah. any products or artifacts I might be able to create. Um, you know, this again is yeah. your memory. It'll never, never leave me. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so uh, just moving down the list here um, towards the end, I will mention ketamine because it's, again, it's another one of these 15 minute experiences when you do a significant amount of it, you know, a sacramental dose of it. You are disintegrated in a way. Um, I had an experience, uh, you know, probably about 10 years ago on the, um, on the rooftop of my friend's house on Venice Beach. We went up to his rooftop and we laid down these chaise, these, you know, chaise lounges and we, we did the ketamine. And, and just like the roaring waves of the beach below us and, you know, Los Angeles at night spread out all lights, you know, in front of us. And just this experience of um, being part of the woodwork, I guess, is one how some people describe it. It was, this, you know, this is, I was dissociated. It's like time stopped, and in some ways, I guess this is one of the the most the closest things you could have with a chemical substance to a non-dual mystical experience, because my subject did collapse. Now I, we talk about the dissolving of the ego with these other substances. They all dissolve your ego, uh, basically. Um, but in different ways, and they leave you with a witness, but the witness is from a different angle, a different perspective. The, the ketamine even dissolves your witness. I mean, even though I still have an experience and I can report to you this experience, not all of it, but some of it. But in other words, my witness was more disintegrated than any of these other uh, experiences because mm. it was just, there was nothing left of me. I was just sort of part of the world and time had stopped. Mm. And, and the, the sort of the, it's almost like the holodeck, you know, like in Star Trek, they have the holodeck. It's a sort of virtual reality and it comes down and then you're in the holodeck, right? Well, that's what it felt like. Like my reality of my experience came down and I was in this sort of white space outside of human mind. And, and yet, you know, I was still there. Wow. 
And and again, it, it, was, it was edgy. You know, there was something mm-hmm. kind of dark about it. Again, not fun, but definitely mm-hmm. an adventure and definitely worth um, once. Uh, wow. Once. And that's um, the drug that has been proven so effective with depression. Well, small doses. You know, yeah. these people who were taking it, you know, not enough to kind of have their their mind disintegrated temporarily. Yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, but you could kind of see how that would help. You know, it's kind of one of those things. I mean, again, it's just like I want to visit all the great backpacking trips of the world, even though you can be rained on the entire time or it's freezing or, you know, it's expensive. Or you, uh, Ketamine was one of those sacred places I wanted to go visit. And I did. And I have no desire to go back. Um, but I'm glad I went. Um, the final experience, the 10th one that I'll mention is Ibogaine or Iboga, which is from Gabon. Gabon, I don't know how to pronounce that country in Africa, but it's a botanical um, and it's being used now as, as it's found to be the most effective uh, psychedelic for treating addiction. And there's all these kind of, uh, um, you know, edgy clinics in Tijuana where people who have heroin go and they take the Ibogaine. I mean, they have this profound experience. It's a psychedelic journey for sure that takes some time. I've never experienced it. It's sort of on my bucket list, like going to the wilderness of New Zealand. You know, I haven't been there yet. It's one of those backpacking destinations. So I'd like to do it. I mean, I'm not addicted to anything, but I would like to go and visit that location because um, other um, um, psychedelic uh, uh, people that I know have and report that it's as profound as ayahuasca, but but definitely. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Well, that's quite a, a, a journey through quite okay, a so pan- me, panorama there. Let me end then by talking about some of the theological implications of this, right? So people writing in the 70s or when, when psychedelic experience first started making its way into the culture, there were, and, and some of the, the more, the, the early uh, advocates of it, like Aldous Huxley, right? Who was also um, one of the main proponents of the perennial philosophy, right? Um, that, that they, these folks, overlay the perennial philosophy, which is kind of a belief system, onto the psychedelic experience, and either talked about psychedelic experience as, as one of the levels on the hierarchy of non-duality, which um, uh, the perennial philosophy uh, purported to be able to describe. Um, so that ontology of these levels of ascension um, were, were sort of overlaid so that the height of the psychedelic experience was said to be the same as a unitive experience or a samadhi experience, right? So Houston Smith, who um, was a big religious scholar, you know, very thoughtful guy, a big Advaita Vedanta proponent who knew the Timothy Leary crowd and who did it with them in Boston around the same time that it was sort of in its heyday in 66. Uh, you know, he talks about it and he tries to say it's a shortcut to mysticism. And that, that what you're experiencing with psychedelics is what the mystics experience when, you know, in their reported through history. And I think that there's, um, that's been sort of uh, rejected by a lot of people who, who think about this, you know, intellectually and, and theologically. And I certainly reject it. I think you could have a samadhi experience of psychedelics, but for most people, the experience of unity that they have is different. I mean, it's a kind of, psychedelics are a unique experience. You, they're not the same. It's not a shortcut to mysticism. It's its own slice of the internal universe. And while there's overlap, again, there's there's uniqueness too. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that, again, I mentioned Rick Strassman, the, the DMT academic, one of the things he's argued is that in his thousands of reports of DMT and other psychedelic experiences, that, the, that actually the reports correspond more to a theistic theology than they do with a non-dual theology. 
you know, not just the beings, but feelings of being loved by ultimate reality, you know, and not that, that the witness remains, that you're not, your subject doesn't just dissolve. Again, I don't think we can use psychedelic experience as a, as a prop uh, for either theism or non-duality. I think mm-hmm. that whatever your path may be, um, that these can be a powerful supplement. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, they're like a Rorschach test for your belief system, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're already, you know, a proponent of the perennial philosophy, in some ways, it's going to confirm that. And if you're a Christian, you might experience angels and, and you know, the love of God. So, you know, there's ways in which um, it doesn't disconfirm nor confirm any particular kind of theology. Um, but I think that, I mean, so Sam Harris has done psychedelics. He talks about them and he talks about their profundity. And maybe that's what accounts for his atheistic spirituality, right? I mean, he can't deny spirituality in some form. We can't just completely tr- toss it out like Richard Dawkins does, right? Or call it ridiculous. Um, there's something to it, but I think that like Pollen, you know, who's a modernist, Sam Harris, who's a modernist, you know, these guys, they're, one of their aims of having the experience is to sort of prove to themselves that they can, they can overcome it, they can compartmentalize it, they can frame it as safe, you know, just like they want to do with uh, psi experiences, right? Any kind of paranormal things. Oh, well, well you know, I, I'll put down $30,000. Anybody who can prove to me paranormal experiences, I'll give them $30,000. And nobody's taking the bet. And therefore, you know, it's, there's that kind of, they know that, that, that people who want to maintain a materialistic worldview can feel where that worldview is threatened. You know, it's threatened in near-death experience. Yep. It's threatened by paranormal experience. And it's threatened by psychedelic experience. Yep. So they're, they're very keen to compartmentalize it and put a frame around it so it doesn't seem so dangerous to their world. Well, well, well uh, uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, it does, uh, I would say, powerfully um, dismantle uh, a materialistic worldview. And as it has done with modern modernity as a whole, right? I mean, coming back to LSD, you know, cat and it sort of cracked the box of modernity that allowed the plant to grow out into a new form of the evolution of consciousness and culture with postmodernism. You know, and now we're now faced with the, you know, the toxins of postmodernism. That's another discussion, you know, as well as it's, it's, but, but the fact that psychedelics have been democratized and the, the adventures of the internal universe are now available to at least people who have connections to the counterculture. That's one of the heroic achievements of postmodern culture. Mm-hmm in America and elsewhere in the world. So I think we need to, um, we need to acknowledge that. Yeah. And thank the birth of green for giving us these new vehicles by which to explore, um, you know, spiritual reality. Yeah. Well, thank you, green. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, so much of it comes from the indigenous and, you know, I mean, it's, it, these have been online for a long time. Uh, sure. And they're coming you know, back Asian and Greek, finding their place. Indians, you know, I mean, the, the Soma and, and the, you know, the cult of Dionysus. I mean, there's been all kinds of interesting uh, history tracing back what these substances were. But clearly, you know, in the 20th century, except for the very rare Bohemian, right, uh, who would take mescaline or something, it was not democratized. If you were a normal person, you never even knew that these things existed, let alone had a chance to do it, Right. And so in that way, um, you know, there has been, I mean, I would have never done it as, you know, just some American guy, but yet I have, and it's contributed to my spiritual uh, path. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's worth sharing. Um, and, 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 and I've done far less, uh, but it has, you know, changed me. Yeah. And in and, and very much the same ways. What I didn't realize and what I've realized even deeper in just this conversation is, you know, it's not just tripping. It's not just getting high. 
there's yeah. all these distinct locations with their own qualities right. that are part of the interior universe. And, you know, that's just evolution right there. I mean, I'm just seeing more complexity of something that was a blob. And right. now I'm beginning to see the sort of top topography of it. Right. You can see that there's much more than our ego constructed world. Yes. And that you could actually experience it. And, and the experiences of the ontology of it, the fact that it's not just a hallucination, that you've actually been to a sacred location and that you're changed by it and improved by it. Those feelings are extremely palpable and extremely long lasting. And so that is testimony to something real about it. Yeah. Wow, Steve. Well, thanks, bro. Thank you, bro, for having me on and letting me talk about these naughty subjects. Yeah. These risky yeah. subjects, these adventures. Yes, um, exactly. Which are nevertheless um, out there. And, and, you know, even if people are not inclined to do it, just knowing yeah. that this is an experience that humans have, it's, it's worth knowing about, I think. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you again, Steve McIntosh. And thank you, everybody, for checking in on the Daily Evolver. Bye. Bye.